This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name's Tom Jennings. And I'm Joachim Thiessen. And joining us today from the website Bleeding Cool, we have a very special guest in the form of Craig Skinner. Craig, thank you very much for coming on board with us today. Uh, no problem. It's nice to be here. And um, I suppose before we normally kind of crack on with the, kind of the review of the film, we normally kind of go through a bit of the, kind of the news. So, Joachim, what have we actually got recently going on in the world of Masters of Cinema? Well, they have recently um, made available pre-orders for Simon Killer, Lenotte and the Tarnished Angels up on their native office site. So if you pre-ordered it before Sunday the 4th of um, August, you would receive a free Blu-ray copy of Tulane Blacktop, the Monty Hellman film. Okay, yeah, I've got an email actually from Amazon saying that Lenotte has actually been delayed um, by a couple of, uh, I think it's Back, been put back till sort of September, October time, according to the thing. I didn't actually kind of read it, but I know it just said that unfortunately it wasn't going to be delivered on time. Uh, Craig, have you seen any of those films at all? Um, I've seen Simon Keller, yeah, uh, which I liked, but uh, I didn't like that much. <laughs> I was quite surprised when it made it into the Master's Cinema, actually. They've kind of gone in a, in a slightly interesting route, I think, with their choices recently. Yeah, because Simon Killer, I mean, I, I don't know anything about it, but I watched a trailer and I know you shouldn't judge a film by its trailer. And it's something we did discuss in another episode, but um, it just seemed, I mean, what, what's it actually about? It just sort of seems... Um, it's about a kind of a guy on a gap year who uh, goes around uh, Paris and I'm pretty sure it is Paris. It's definitely France and is um, kind of just having interactions with women um, that are a little bit sordid and he's uh, experimenting, I suppose, trying to get over his ex-girlfriend, it would seem. But it's very kind of meandering. There's no, there's no kind of solid plot that I kind of gives you an idea of what it's about, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, what, I, I, what was I, it that put you off about the trailer? Kind of, And I can kind of perhaps say whether that is kind of what the film's like. Uh, well, I just didn't sort of get any feel for what the film was actually about at all. And it, like I said, just seemed to be this guy kind of going around, just sort of talking to people. They didn't, they didn't need, there was no sort of like kind of nothing that really kind of grabbed me and made me think, oh, that looks kind of interesting in any way, shape or form. And it was it was a bit strange. It was a sort of, it felt like when I, when I watched Only God Forgives, I just sort of sat there thinking this is an hour and a half of, I've, I'm really kind of dull and uninterested. And that Simon Killer trailer seemed like a trailer for a film that appeared completely dull and uninteresting. And uh, obviously I'm going to have to buy it because it's kind of coming out in the master cinema. But uh, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it just didn't seem to kind of lack, have anything that really kind of appealed to me at all. Uh, there's some there's some things going on there. I, I'd say there's certainly more going on than in Only God Forgives. Uh, less less kind of obvious things, perhaps, because I think Only God Forgives is pretty blunt in its delivery. But um, yeah, I think I think it's an interesting film for them to choose. Definitely, there's definitely some stuff going on in it. It's got a really good, and the other thing I would say is it has got going for it. It has got a really good poster. It's a kind of retro mm, kind of nineteen seventies, yeah. And uh, yeah, I was uh, kind of digging that. So you know, it's the kind of thing I'd like them more. But um, and what about kind of like Lenotte or kind of the Tarnished Angels? Any of those? I haven't. No, I'm going to watch uh, Tarnished Angels very soon. I'm really looking forward to that. But um, I've not seen Lenotte. That definitely worth. That is well worth buying. Um, well, yeah, one of my favourite Antonio films. But um, what else have we got kind of going on there, Joachim? Uh, Masters of Cinema, they announced uh, yesterday on Monday the 5th that uh, Ted Kotcheff's Awake in Fright, an Australian a new wave film from 1971, has been uh, has been acquisitioned to the Masters of Cinema. And uh, this was nominated for a 
Palme d'Or in 1971 in the Cannes Film Festival and restored in uh, 2009. And it's uh, described as a really haunting and brutal and quite gripping film. Yeah, never heard of it. Um, what about you, Craig? Is that one on? Have you heard of that one? I had heard of it before. I remember reading about it when I was a lot younger, but I think at the time it wasn't available or it was at least very difficult to get hold of. Um, so I never actually saw it. But I quite like uh, a lot of kind of exploitation stuff. So I'm, I'm quite looking forward to it, actually. I've heard it's very disturbing as well. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, yeah, same kind of really. I, I, I love kind of films of like 1970s Australian films. There's something particularly kind of, I don't know, odd about them in a in a good way and it kind of you're never quite kind of sure what's going to happen next in them and certainly uh yeah i'd be quite intrigued to have a look at that one is there anything else going on at Joachim, or is that kind of it for the kind of the news slide the kind of thing that's kind of it uh waking fright that will be uh, released theatrically on the uh, film for fright fest um in late august this year and the blu-ray and dvd will come early next year so Okay, good stuff. And I suppose before we kind of talk about um, today's film, which is Haraki, uh, kind of really Craig just kind of have a chat with you about kind of what it is you kind of do and, um, you know, kind of your kind of what, what kind of film means in your life. Um, why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit about kind of uh, kind of the website and things like that? Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm full time at Bleeding Call now, so uh, you can find all of my stuff there. Um, and yeah, I've been really into film since I was a kid. And uh, I originally, like a lot of people, I think probably wanted to be a filmmaker. But but that that desire went away quite quickly. And uh, when I went to university, I studied film studies and it was writing about film that I really loved. And uh, when I realised that writing about film for a living was a thing that you could actually do and, you know, <laughs> that being a film critic wasn't necessarily something that these people that seemed so far away from me uh, did, then I, then I kind of pursued that as much as I could. So... Um, yeah, I, I write about film on a daily basis now, and I absolutely love film. It's my passion. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it is one of those things. I mean, I went to because it's a similar kind of story, really. We kind of went to university myself and, and studied film, and there was a there was. I guess a kind of a bit of a kind of dismissive attitude to anyone who kind of actually had a serious idea, you know, idea about going in and being a film critic. And it kind of seemed that kind of film critics at the time, there was a few cool ones that people followed, but I don't think people were really kind of aware that. And it was certainly this kind of pre-internet boom that, uh, you know, now, I mean, there's so many avenues to become, go down that route and to actually kind of make a living out of it. I think, you know, you can, in that respect, it's extremely fortunate to be in a position where you can actually do that. Yeah, it's very rare now. Um, And sadly, I think maybe becoming rarer and rarer. But at the same time, the, the way it's kind of democratised in the way that people can get to write about film a lot quicker does result in some incredible stuff like, uh, you know, people sharing their passions uh, that wouldn't have had the opportunity otherwise. Because, I mean, I, mean, I don't for me, but I mean, do you ever kind of read anything by kind of Arm and White? Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of Arm and White, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> I might I'm be like, alone, I'm... but... <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've always sort of... Yeah, at times, I think he, 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 he kind of... He gets a lot of things spot on, and one of the things I, I do really agree with him is, is talking about the kind of the difference between kind of professional film critics and the kind of the the internet kind of um, film critics. I mean, one of the things kind of like Yoko and I discussed in the past. I mean, I, I find sort of like a lot of online film forums and kind of Facebook groups to be kind of they're not really about film criticism per se. They tend to be about film worship in a way, and 
you, you can't kind of talk about the Avengers with, without sort of just saying it's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Anyone who tries to kind of bring something else to the table kind of gets shot down in flames. And it, it, I, I've particularly found it fr- frustrating over the past year and a half, really, just sort of this kind of move away from what I, not, I wouldn't say be kind of, I'm asked enough to say kind of intelligent film conversation, but kind of film conversation that kind of goes a little bit deeper into films as opposed to kind of, I love this, that scene was awesome. I mean, is that something that you yourself kind of find slightly frustrating? Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's it's not a conversation a lot of the time. It's just uh, kind of binary opinions, just people shouting backwards and forwards at each other where it's, I love this or I hate this, rather than a reasoned argument, uh, which is what's interesting about film criticism and discussing film is the conversation. I love it when I speak to someone who doesn't like a film that I like, but they've got an interesting angle on it or they can express why they don't like it in an interesting way which is why i like armand white i disagree with him probably as much as i agree with him probably more so but i always find what he writes interesting he always has something interesting to say about the film even if i don't agree with it even if i don't think it's that valid necessarily but it's at least an interesting way of looking at it and sometimes a way that i hadn't thought of myself so that's yeah the conversation is the thing that interests me and this sort of attitude of saying yeah the avengers is the best thing ever why well it just is that's not good enough it's not (laughs) that's not interesting i don't want to i don't want to read someone just telling me that they like something it's not it's not an interesting piece of criticism yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, I mean, your thing as well, I mean, obviously we could have invited you on to the Masters. When, when was the kind of time you came aware of Masters of Cinema and you, have you been kind of collecting them for quite a long time? Do you know, I was sitting here thinking that as I was uh, waiting for you to call, thinking, what, what was the first one I bought? And I wish I could remember. <laughs> I, I think it might be Diary of a Lost Girl, the uh, Louise Brooks film. And I think... I think that I didn't know that it was Masters of Cinema at the time. I, th- I think I remember buying a few DVDs and then noticing on my shelf, oh, look, they've all got the same label. Not really conscious of it until yeah. till I had them and then realised what they were, started looking into Masters of Cinema. I think I was aware of the Criterion Collection at the time because I think my uncle had introduced me to the Laserdiscs. But, right. um So I think I remember thinking, oh, it's like a British Criterion Collection and then going down that rabbit hole of... Uh, trying to collect them all and uh, <laughs> trying to watch them all and gradually spending <laughs> so much money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is something Yoko and I have discussed. I mean, we're pretty sad in the fact if, if you stick a spine number on something, I will feel compelled to collect it. And it, it does get very, very um, expensive, uh, certainly when it comes to the Criterion collection and certainly when they get impounded at uh, customs. That is always <laughs> just an added twist. To the, to the expense. So the topic of today's film is it's actually Blu-ray Spine number 20 and it's Masaki Kubayashi's uh, Harakiri. Masaki <laughs> さくなき幕府の
actually, I just push before we begin kind of talking about the film in general. Um, what are your kind of guys' thoughts on kind of samurai films and the kind of Japanese films of this period? Craig, I mean, are you kind of quite a big fan of this type of cinema? I am, yeah, very much so. Uh, I'm a big fan of 60s Japanese cinema and 70s Japanese cinema as well. I've got a big thing for Japanese cinema in general, but those two decades uh, are really interesting to me. Um, a lot about the way the politics changed cinema and a lot of filmmakers were doing some really interesting things, even within kind of genre pictures that people didn't hold that much regard for perhaps at the time. Yeah, I'm a, a pretty big fan myself. I think that it's sort of their genre of uh, science fiction where they they can use allegories and comments on uh, modern society through these historical pictures, the way that Western society used science fiction. And, uh, uh, Kobayashi Sarakiri, that was actually the film that got me started into podcasting and I just, I'm quite fascinated with how he manages to cram so much comments on uh, not only uh, society but also the way that the way that Chambra films are made and how they are structured and how he sort of poses an, an alternative to that. Yeah, and for me, it's it's one of these ones where I think my pretty entry point was the Seven Samurai, and I wouldn't say I've been massively into these films. Although I do seem to own hundreds of them, and I'm slowly kind of working my way through it and kind of watching uh, Harakiri. I definitely have to go and watch The Human Condition now. Have either of you seen that yet? I have, yeah, but uh, quite some time ago. But <laughs> I keep thinking of oh, I need to watch that again. But it's the committing the nine hours to sitting down and watching yeah. <laughs> it isn't always that easy. <laughs> and I, I can never feel that I can just watch one part of it. You know, it needs to be watched as a whole. Yeah, it's 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 an all day that one, isn't it? Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm currently working my way through Kobayashi's filmography, so I'm up to um, Fountainhead, I think, in 1955. So Human Condition is uh, ahead of me still. Yeah, it's still waiting on my shelf, ready to be watched. Uh, the Criterion this was purchased some time ago and uh, has still not made it. And by that time, I'll, by the time I get around to watching it, I'll probably bought the Blu-ray just to annoy myself and spend <laughs> more money with that thing. But no, it's um, yeah, it's, it's it's a period of cinema. I think it's pretty fascinating, and um, I, I, it seems to attract a lot of distributors like the Criterion Collection and Masters of Cinema. And I, I think yeah, I think that's for a reason. Like I, I, I said, you were saying, you're Kim. It's it's a period of cinema that I think seems to kind of interest a lot of people, but Kind of moving on to Harakiri, I mean, it's a film about a ronin samurai called Hanshiro who arrives at the estate of the Lee clan and it asks if he can commit Haraki or ritual suicide as per the ancient tradition. How it appears that many other ronin have had the same idea and have instead been given money and food to go away. There is something of an economic crisis on and in hard times this as trend has caught on. So Hanshiro is told the story of another ronin from the same house called Montomi who asked exactly the same thing. And due to having to sell his sword ended up having to commit the ritual by using a bamboo sword. Now, unfazed, Hanshiro insists that what he yeah, he's going to go through with the Harakiri and the flashbacks, we begin to realise that he actually knows Monotomi quite well. In fact, he was his son-in-law. No, Hashiro has every intention of dying. He's going to show the House of Lee and its main counsellor, Saito, just how its notion of honour is nothing more than a complete illusion. So, OK, first thoughts on this film, Craig. What were your first opinions of it? Um, I was quite taken with the cinematography and the score, I think, more at first, more than anything else. And uh, then getting sucked into the story, like like so many films that really hook you, especially when you're younger, something like Rashomon or um, Rear Window really hooked me when I was a kid. And both of those, for the, the same reason as this, that the story just 
consumes you that you can't once you start watching it you can't stop uh but uh it was definitely how striking a lot of the filmmaking was was something that really hit me at first i have the same experience where i was uh taken by the style more than the story at first but then as you as you watch the film more and more you you just you realize how incredibly layered the uh, the events are and just the storytelling and how everything is commenting on uh, on different uh, sort of layers throughout the film and it was just something incredibly fresh watching a film a chamber film uh, that i felt went deeper than the surface I, i've seen a few other chamber films like the samurai trilogy uh, that I feel like they they work on an entertainment level, but I felt that this had something deeper to it, a more uh, a more zest to it, and uh, a vitality that Kobayashi brings uh, with his uh, political dissidents, and it's, it was something that opened my eyes to just his type of work and uh, Kobayashi as a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I, I my first actual kind of screening of this film, um, thankfully, was on the big screen. And it was on one of the biggest screens I've ever seen a film on, in fact. And I, I was so in awe of it when I saw it that it, it in a way, kind of, like the, kind of the deeper levels of it went kind of straight over my head. Because I think as we've discussed, I mean, this is certainly um, a, a film, if you are a fan of kind of cinematography and just kind of the kind of the, the techniques of directing in general, I think there's so much in there for you. But I mean, I, I just sat, sat there in awe of it. And I didn't go back to it for a very long time until I picked it up again on DVD. And uh, it, it is like, I think you were saying, Craig, it's one of those films where once you start watching it, I think it's almost impossible not to kind of make it to the end. And I mean, I watched it again last night in preparation for this at about nine o'clock. And I thought about 10, I thought, oh, I'll turn it off now, go to bed, watch the rest of the morning. And I, I physically found that I couldn't. It's just so gripping as to what's going to happen. And I mean, I think kind of, Joachim, you, you kind of were saying that uh, you have to kind of look at really kind of what was going on in kind of Japanese culture at the time, and especially kind of where Japanese cinema had kind of come from, because um, kind of the Japanese films of the war are, are, are pretty dire, aren't they, really? The very propaganda films where they are, you can you have to look at like the World War to, uh, and just how they they came from this. Uh, incredibly dark place and many other films that were made during the war was very patriotic and very very uh, elevating the military, military and lots of militaristic themes in the film and after the world war two um, there was a tradition of expressing like dissidents and protesting through art and the filmmaking was uh, certainly one of those art films that where uh, they flourished and we had a lot of films that came through including harakiri yeah and i guess i mean i mean i i said it i think on the floating weeds episode where in many respects um i i kind of see kind of japan post kind of post-war almost as kind of like a post-apocalyptic society it was sort of really decimated and kind of rebuilt um in an image of i suppose kind of the an american image really which is kind of like mixture of kind of uh, kind of ancient Ch Ch Japanese culture and kind of this new kind of consumerist uh, society. And Craig, I mean, is that something you've kind of come across before in kind of Japanese cinema? That kind of, I suppose it's kind of a, a looking at the country with a slightly more kind of cynical eye. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the post-war um, changes to Japan are, are one of the most interesting things about cinema, uh, about Japanese cinema for me. The the reason I kind of are drawn to the 60s and 70s Japanese cinema is because the 
the impact of the post-war is still being felt so strongly in those decades, but at the same time, there's been enough period of time that's passed that um, filmmakers can really explore the ideas that they perhaps couldn't towards the start of the 50s and maybe even the end of the 50s. And I think the effect, the effect of the war is, seems to be huge on, on cinema of Japan. And you see in filmmakers, again, in the Master Cinema series, the Pigs and Battleships, is, uh, you can see it very strongly in that. Um, and uh, like you say, the, the effect of America, and obviously America occupied Japan to a degree, uh, which I'm sure had a huge impact on people living there. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm right in saying, I think like baseball's the number one sport in Japan. Or mm. you know, so you can sort of see the fact, you know, I mean, I, I'm pretty certain it's quite popular before, but I mean, it's, I mean, I, I know someone who lives there who was sort of telling me that uh, it, it was a very strange, well, it's having spoken to kind of people around that time, was saying it was a very strange period because you sort of literally overnight, it was, you know, everything you knew about your country was kind of changed massively and what I, f- I find interesting about these kind of these film exercises that like I said there's been enough time to sort of kind of I suppose regroup and look at the country um in a kind of slightly more kind of critical eye because Kobayashi uh, he was definitely a very political filmmaker and certainly was someone who who liked to kind of stir the pot I mean Joachim, you've been going through his films at the moment and as I understand I mean I think his first film was one of the first um, kind of looks at the kind of Japanese conduct during the war where he he placed the blame on kind of like the high ranking officers as opposed to kind of like the lows lower down. I think that is the the thin walled room or the thick walled room or something like that. Uh, thick walled room is thick walled yeah. room. Uh, yeah, I haven't gotten to that film yet. So the earlier films I've been watching, they're very much in the style of uh, Ozu and Naruse, where they are like these generational conflicts were very, very muted and very like uh, vanilla plain. There's nothing, nothing extraordinary or nothing that you can recognize Kobayashi's own voice in it. It feels very much like a run-of-the-mill uh, basic Shichiku B-film melodrama. So um, I'm waiting for that, uh, that point in his filmography where I can like recognize some of this that we are seeing in Arakiri. The Thick Walled Room, uh... My memory's a little bit hazy of it. I did see it uh, a few years back when I was doing a similar thing of working my way through certain filmmakers. And uh, it's about uh, Japanese soldiers jailed for crimes um, committed during the war. And I think it's it's very, very strongly anti-war and kind of ham- hammers home that point that Kobayashi makes quite a lot in his films about pacifism and uh, socialism as well. So I, th- mm. I think it's uh, that's the one that's going to going to suddenly come together for you probably mm. <laughs> yeah i mean as i said i think that film was actually banned for four years when it came out um i think a lot of people were kind of pretty shocked by kind of you know what was going on in it but i, think you know, it I of... mean uh harakiri uh shichiku i'm pretty sure were, weren't too keen on releasing it because of the political messages that they saw in it even even in 62 and i i know they there are a couple of filmmakers that clashed with shichiku and uh, nakatsu as well uh, because they were being too political with their films and the studios weren't too keen on it. So even like 10 years after Thick Walled Room, they were still having the same issues, really. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I mean, Harry, yeah, I, mean, I suppose we can, it's as good a time as any, really, to kind of, kind of talk talk a little bit more about kind of, the, the, I suppose, the, the, the kind of the meat, the meat of this film, because it's, it's a film which, I, I mean, it's 
I think really kind of cuts through the kind of crap really about kind of ancient traditions and especially the sort of the the idea of kind of honor and it, I think it kind of shows the kind of the fallacy of those kind of systems I mean Joachim this is something you've talked about quite a lot before I mean I know you did this from the film man but I mean just want to expand a little bit on kind of the, the sort of the, the kind of the themes that are going on here yeah because we, we were talking about chambra films uh before and this is like the anti-chambra film almost where the primary goal is not to is not to honor the bushido code that the samurai live by but it is to question it and to, to question the honor of the e household that um hanshiro visits and it, it just proves by the events of the house and how certain members have acted and he proves that their their code that they've been living by has been falsified because they they tend to break all the rules themselves, even though they idealize the the Bushido code. They they don't live by it, and it just challenges Japan's idealized notion of their own feudal past. Where it's showing that the historical roots of uh, like contemporary injustice that we see it it's even it's even relevant in these early days of 1630, which is set before the most of the samurai films are set so it shows that like this was already present in the early stages of the um of the shogunate it's not something that has been a result of uh, an unjust system it's something that was present at at the very start of it i think as well there's that idea of the japanese concept of hone and tatame i probably pronouncing that very badly but the idea of the kind of public perception versus the truth and uh this idea that the the group they they have this idea of what they think being a samurai is and this idea of how they should be represented to the world but what goes on behind closed doors is completely different and i think mm. they're completely conscious of that they know they know that they're not very nice people, perhaps, mm. and they know that they do these things that are uh, could necessarily could be frowned upon. But I think they they don't see that as mattering. It's what's the surface is what's important. And I really like the way Kobayashi kind of like just destroys that and says, "No, look, you need to look at yourselves and really think about what you're doing." The kind of the way that they're so malicious towards uh, the young guy uh, with making him do this with the bamboo sword, and the way they kind of laugh together as well. Uh, they must know what they're doing, but I don't think they're kind of held up by anyone to actually think about what they're doing. Because that is a real, I mean, it's a strange one because every time I've watched this film, um, when you kind of watch, um, so you see Matomi kind of preparing for it, I always sort of have the same kind of feeling, which is, well, you've brought this upon yourself. They're only letting you do what you've asked to do. And it, it becomes kind of blatantly apparent as the film goes on. You sort of think that there is definitely something very wrong going on here. And you sort of begin to see the kind of the sadism about it. And the fact that there is a little bit more. And when that kind of reveal comes as to who he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it. Um, I think it, it, it becomes an incredibly powerful film in the fact that you sort of, you think these hypocrites really, and these absolute kind of jokers, you know, the fact that they are actually kind of looking at it and going to make him do this kind of bamboo sword. Um, yeah, I think it's it's a shocking moment, and you do sort of question you know, where's the kind of the honour in all this. You know, what, 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 why, you, well, why are they going to allow him to do it in this way? And I, I think it's one of the thing, things about the film. It, that's why it haunts me um, for days after that. Sometimes when I've watched this film before, and it's, I don't, know, it's a very painful film to watch. I, I think a lot of the time in many respects. 
I think that's partly because they do such a good job of kind of tricking you as an audience member as well that you start watching it and you're told that that story first about him turning up that he does this suicide bluff uh so you're kind of led down this path of thinking well you know he he turns up and he's trying to get money you know maybe maybe this isn't the best way of dealing with it but maybe they're partly justified that might be the way you're thinking as you're watching it but then of course the rug's pulled up under from you as well as from them and uh it's revealed kind of quite the emotional side to what what's gone on it's not only that you're kind of tricked into or not tricked but you're you're duped uh, the way they are duped uh, and you you kind of explore the film as it moves along but i feel like through the filmmaking and through the the escalation of events and just how you are constantly being navigated very very it feels like he he, he the direction in this film is so steady that you're you're always you're always focusing on either the images or the music or being startled by camera movements or there's always something going on in a film, I feel like, either new information that is revealed or they are trying to plot their way to kill him, killing him earlier or th- there's always something going on and I feel like that is something that prevents us from being bored, basically. Because it's a, it's a pretty long film, it's like two hours and ten minutes or something. And you don't really feel it. It feels like an 90-minute film. Yeah, I think it could easily be a lot shorter, this film, um, in some respects. And like I said, I mean, I think what it is, actually, I think the point you're making, I think it's just incredibly well written um, in terms of really kind of what you kind of withheld from an audience and you know, these snippets that you kind of you feed them. Because like I said, I mean, you and my initial thoughts on Matomi were like, well, you've, you've made your bed pal lie in it. And then it's amazing how your kind of opinion of the character completely changes as the film progresses and you get those little reveals. I mean, Craig, I mean, is it a film which you, you could, we could talk about kind of how it looked before? I mean, I, I certainly think a lot of these films for me, anyway, these kind of samurai films, a lot of them do kind of kind of blur into one a little bit. But this one really stands out. And I think that is down to the kind of directing of Kobayashi. Yeah, I think it's extraordinarily uh, well directed down to kind of minute details. I, I agree with you that. I can watch a lot of samurai films and do find myself struggling to remember which one's which sometimes. I tried to watch uh, every Zatoichi film uh, a few years back and I got something like 14 in and I realised I couldn't remember what the hell happened in any of them um, or which happened in which film. Uh, and the same, you know, Fukusaku's films, absolutely love them, but there's about 10 that I can't really remember what happened in which. And if they looked more distinctly, that probably would have made a difference as well. But the Harakiri really stands out. The cinematography is just so beautiful in the way it delineates characters with lines and the way the the score works and the sound design as well. It's so minimal. Uh, it's so stark, kind of reflecting the cinematography as well, the way it's just these kind of harsh lines to the way everyone sits and uh, the way they're represented. I think it's I think it's very minutely detailed for very deliberate reasons, and I think that's the reason it kind of strikes everyone so much when they watch it. Mm. it I mean, it, you know, it's it's a film. You know, to quote kind of Jerry Maguire, it kind of has me at hello really from that opening sequence because that, that kind of like track through that the, the building with all these kind of you know empty rooms and that incredible samurai suit. Um, I mean, I personally love those buildings. Anyway, if I could, if I could build my own house, I would have one that was kind of modelled on that. They, they, they never look kind of dated in a way, which mm. I think is kind of quite in, in, incredible about this film. But I mean, 
Yeah, I, I I can't agree more. Really, I, this film is just it's just a marvel to watch, and I think that's sometimes that's a dangerous thing when you watch a film for the first time. Um, as I I, I I discovered when I went to go watch To the Wonder, and again I've spoken about this before, but I said to my friend as we left, I said, "Well, what, what do you think of it?" And he just turned around and said, "I don't know. I was just too busy watching the film." And I know exactly what he meant. It was just because it was just too stunning to really focus on anything else, and that was my first impression of this really i had to kind of get over how good looking it is and how well directed it is and it's it's little things as well like the kind of the jump cuts in there that just they're very momentarily quite disconcerting and then you kind of like catch up with the scene and it kind of draws attention to it. and a lot of films obviously they kind of they go to great lengths to kind of hide the kind of artificiality of the fact that there's someone behind the camera but i feel like kobayashi i think you feel his voice all the time in this film and i think that is one of the reasons why i think it stands out so much I will say there's one thing I'm not such a big fan of, though, uh, which is the zooms. I know they're kind of appropriate to the time. A lot of people were using them, but I just they some of them work well, I'd say. But I, as a whole, I'm not a big fan of zooms and I'm not sure they entirely work within the film. There's there's quite a few moments where they zoom in um, and there's actually one, I think, where it does a kind of a double zoom. And uh, yeah, I don't know that zoom always pulls me out of a film to some degree. It's weird with zooms because I mean I, I I made a short film last year and still kind of in the process of kind of making it come together and I remember there was I I'm, I don't mind zooms really and I remember speaking to my director of photography and I said well let's do a zoom here and he's like no God no we can't do a zoom they're, <laughs> they're awful and it's like this sort of like thing but I if you watch kind of like a lot of Ridley Scott films as as, as as I do you know he uses zooms quite a lot and I remember one of his kind of um, commentaries he was talking about zooms and was sort of saying that they, they seem to have become almost a taboo um today and you very very rarely see filmmakers use them and i don't personally have an issue with them um i think people tend to like tracks really because I, I, that just seems to be sort of more aesthetically pleasing but i think it's uh, no, also I, I think not so much just aesthetically pleasing i think it perhaps comes down to the, the way in which we view the world that a zoom is obviously an unnatural thing, whereas, you know, we can essentially track, but we can't zoom. Yeah. Uh, if you were to walk forwards towards your uh, TV or sofa or wherever you are right now, you would see it like a tracking shot, but you couldn't zoom no matter how how you really did it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it's coming with Google Glasses. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like the, the zoom, it brings something else to the, uh, to the palette. It, it's something that jolts us and it's the same with the music that the music is sort of off key it, it's sort of when he hits the chords it's uh, it's after something has happened or right before something happened it's not quite at a point but uh, i feel like the same is uh with the zooms that they feel kind of off kilter but it, it works in jolting the viewer into a certain point in his viewing experience yeah, I think maybe that's why I think perhaps some of them do work as opposed to some that don't. But I, mm. I think the yeah that jolt can be effective. I think you're you're totally right about the score as well. It's a similar sort of uh, kind of attitude there. Well, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I mean, I, I'm pretty certain last night when I was watching this that I, I think this film's clearly cut to music as well. Um, a lot of the kind of the mute does kind of prompt uh, changes in the scene and, and, and cuts here and there. And it gives it a kind of a rhythm that, um, like, like we were saying, really, I, I don't I don't tend to kind of take that out of kind of similar types of films. But um, I just want to kind of talk a little bit as well, really, about the kind of the the art direction in general, because this is such a sparse film, isn't it? In, in many ways, it is not. It's so kind of bare bones in in that kind of the building that they're in that it 
it, it has this kind of sense of being quite um i don't know like a sort of a, an empty place for kind of empty morals yeah and i mean it's quite cleanly made as well i think that's another part when you were talking about the plot earlier it, it almost sounds to anyone who hasn't seen this film it perhaps sounds a bit convoluted or complicated the plot but the story actually is quite simple i think and it's quite cleanly told and i think the cinematography at the same time is quite cleanly done and the art direction is very clean as well that there's kind of no fat to it and the the soundtrack when you talk about those uh, being cut to the music there's so many stabs of music rather than long flowing pieces you know takamitsu does this this really stabbing harsh jolting uh sense to it and it does flow through everything the and i think you're right as well about the their kind of emptiness kind of it's a sort of hollow place that they live in it's quite it's a little bit depressing really i think where they where they're living it's em- you know they're they're for a bygone era they're they're living somewhere where that doesn't really matter anymore it's not relevant they're clinging on to something that's unimportant and i think that that again feeds into this um this idea of post-war japan that the, this move past the militarist state that they're kind of obsessed with this idea of these past glories perhaps and and people coming back and realizing that that's really not that important that thing that we thought was the most important thing there was it's it's like commenting on the general theme of the film where you're you're kind of clinging on to these social conventions and the balance of the being polite and having the ritual and following procedure and it feels like the uh, art direction it's just it's very strict but it's also very claustrophobic it feels like they're, uh, they're being suffocated and when you're you have these structures in the in the uh, in the frame which are always it's making uh it's kind of pressing um people together where the frames are becoming smaller and smaller and it's it's actually shot in this cinemascope this wide wide frame but he's using it uh, against the norm he's not using it to show like the expansive properties of the frame but he's using it to gain more claustrophobic um, feeling to it and he constantly divides the frame as well both with mm. the with the art direction with the building itself with the props but also with the the way he shoots it there's there's so many vertical and horizontal lines dividing everyone in the frame yeah it's I, I mean, the, the the thing about that location as well for me is uh, it's. It, I think it almost gives the film kind of like a slightly kind of timeless quality as well because if you tell that that building that kind of architecture hasn't changed, I don't think in 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 hundred years. I mean, you see footage now, kind of like you know people in China, the sort of the houses do kind of look quite similar. I don't know if that was such a kind of the deliberate attempt to kind of try and kind of bridge the time difference between kind of then and you know, the contemporary sixties. But no, I I do. The, the kind of the the kind of the yeah the horizontal lines and things like that going on it 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 makes you I, I it was weird because a few weeks ago I watched the Ballad of Nayarama, um which was uh, part of the Criterion collection and it was all kind of shot on on a set and I'm pretty convinced that this would have been I, I this I'm pretty certain this is a set and it to me I I with the Ballad of Nayarama, um, it was it was kind of like quite a jumble film. There's loads and loads in the image, and there was so much to look at. In here, you're forced to focus on the characters all the time, and I, I think that's one of its strengths, really, because you can't take your eyes off them in many mm. respects. You kind of you are you have he forces you to watch them, and um, it, it's in a way I think it's especially in the age of cinema we live in now, where it just throws as much as you can at the screen. He's kind of kind of 
I suppose, ethos for this is to kind of strip it back to just its bare essentials, which is, really comes down to kind of characters and dialogue. And that's why I think it's so sort of refreshing still today. Yeah, and I think it's odd as well that really at the same time he's being quite experimental. You know, it's kind of a real formal approach. It's a Jidaigeki that he's making. It's a formal type of cinema. He's using formal ideas of black and white cinematography and um, the kind of certain camera movements and things. But then at the same time, he's in, introducing into that very experimental ideas, uh, very kind of odd ideas to be putting in that sort of film, both in the filmmaking and in the storytelling and also in the themes. And then you have Tori Takamatsu on doing the soundtrack and doing the exact same thing. that He's doing something formal in that he has a b-word playing that he's playing but he's playing it in an incredibly bizarre way for for that that you'd normally hear in that sort of film there's a very much an, an interplay between like there's a balancing act between being very passive and being very active through all of the elements in the film it's very much a comment on the uh, yin and yang was such a great part of the bushido code itself and i think but what all this kind of stuff indoors does and all these, these brilliant scenes is that it builds it up to that scene when we do finally get out onto that kind of hilltop um, when we kind of go through that that incredible graveyard when kind of Hanshiro goes to fight the retainer and suddenly it becomes this massively wide, expansive film. Hmm. And it, it's, it almost feels like you're in a different film, really, like one of those kind of, um, you know, like we were talking about earlier, those kind of endless kind of samurai films. But to me, that, that scene always strikes me on top of that hill with kind of the wind blowing. Um, and... It's, it's again. It's one of the reasons why I, I, I enjoy this film so much is because that moment feels like a massive release from the kind of the claustrophobia of what has kind of gone before. And as well, you get the kind of slight thrill as well. There's a slight excitement that he's going to finally give them their comeuppance in a way. And uh, Kobayashi kind of shoots the last twenty minutes more like a an action film that you're watching these exciting sword fights that perhaps is what you especially in a, a cinema that originally went to see it perhaps they were expecting to walk in and see some of those sword fights and they spent the whole film watching something a little different and then at the end they get that thrilling moment that you end on that but then of course i don't know how much we want to talk about the ending but the the ending isn't quite that thrilling and uh, happy yeah well i mean i think sort of before we get there i just want to kind of just quick, quickly talk about the kind of how graphic this film is because i mean it does not hold back does it and i think that is one of the reasons why i mean i know at the time when it came out it caused massive controversy and um you know it's, it's kind of like a 15 certificate now which is uh, to be 15 certificate now i mean i think i think you have to kind of push it a little bit i mean it is it's a visceral film in many ways and i i'm i'm constantly surprised by just how kind of like bloody it is i mean you know you've got some kind of thoughts on this yeah it's i feel like People are saying that it's very violent, but I feel like much of the violence is, it's hidden in a way. So we're not necessarily, of course, we see a lot of blood, but we don't see any of the brutal violence until the final 20 uh, or the final 10 minutes of it, I feel. But um, the, the final showdown where Hanshiro is um, going crazy inside the EE household, we can see like swords going through people's heads and yeah it, it gets pretty violent i feel there but earlier when we see like matomi doing the um harakiri he he, he kind of lays on top of it and we only see a shot behind him i think where the blood like squirts out underneath him and it's not it's it's certainly visceral but it's not something that is thrown at you 
I think it's the noise that got me, to be honest with you. And the that fact that it's, and it's, it's the dialogue as well going into it. You know, you have to cut right across your bowels and I'm not going to end your life until you've done that. Not and only it's just that, actually... but Matomi, his screams that he, he creates, it's, it's excruciating to listen to. And his face as well. I think his face is just says everything. It's so mm. intense. And the way the guy, uh, the second who's going to eventually decapitate him, won't do it, that he'll mm. just see. He says, there's the moment where he says, no, you have to go all the way to the right or all the way to the left. I can't remember which way it is. But he he makes it clear that he's going to really make him suffer. And I think that's just, it's quite agonizing to watch that sequence. Mm. Um, really, really quite brutal. And I find it not surprising that it was so controversial at the time. And I found it kind of interesting that they've, there's a remake, obviously, the Takeshi Miyake one, and he was criticised for making it too violent again, which is kind of odd. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Have you ever really seen it? No, I and I, I the only I was, I was about to bring it up actually. The only reason I'm not going to watch it is because I can't get hold of it in 3D. Ah, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, you know as well the 3D is absolutely amazing. It's one of the yeah. best 3D uh, examples of 3D that I can think of. Whenever anyone says to me about 3d not adding something or something like that i always bring up harakiri because it's such a great example of 3d benefiting the story by by decisions they made yeah and i mean i, I only found out about this remake last night when i was, I was like reading up on this and i thought takeshi miike 3d remake of harakiri i thought that has got to be purchased immediately and i went on amazon <laughs> and um it wasn't there and i just thought damn it you know um until it until i can see it in that version because it just sounds just too tantalizing really for, for its own good but I, I mean every time I see him I always think he's going to get rescued I always think something's going to happen that like he's not actually going to have to go through with it and when he actually has to start kind of getting kind of actually kind of performing this this horrible ritual um it's yeah like it's excruciating and it, it goes on for as long as it takes to kill him which is obviously quite a long time and like I said the the kind of the performance to go with it is it's shocking and it's disturbing and and deliberately so because i think it makes what happens later when kind of hanshiro kind of starts to kind of um lecture these guys it makes the sermon seem actually sort of really kind of i don't know it gives it a lot of weight i think into what he's saying it doesn't feel just like some kind of like habitual telling off you, you I, I think you really sort of feel the uh the anger and the i think the kind of the shock of what's actually happened yeah well, i think unless you had seen it quite so viscerally i'm not sure you would have it would have perhaps felt like he was laying it on a bit thick when he starts telling the story of the uh his daughter and the kid and everything but you know you know that this you know they were they were responsible and it was quite brutal what they did it wasn't just that they he turned up he asked if he could do it they said yes and then he did it that you know that there needs to be something a bit more to it hmm. and um you also get a feeling that the feeling of coercion and oppression is such it's such a pivotal point in that scene where the the low angles and how everyone is standing over Matomi and looking down at him and you'd know that it just brings something it brings those extra angry feelings in the viewer more to the to the surface I feel the sense of like control and how he's being isolated through not only the uh, uh, the camera movement but also the editing and how he's being uh, isolated like Hanshiro is uh, being later it certainly uh, brings it up to another level for me 
Yeah, and, and it's knowing that these guys are such complete hypocrites. Mm. Then they sat there kind of talking about honour and all this kind of crap and the fact that they themselves have none. And, I mean, yeah, they're never going to put themselves in a, in the same situation, are they? Let's be honest. It's, no. You know, this is very... It's it's the kind of, you know, you do it and then you can be the one who's all kind of big and brave, but we're just going to sit here and watch you do it and make you do it. And, yeah, it's the fact that as well they're making do it with these bamboo swords is it's horrendous when you kind of think about that and you can see them mocking and it it takes on this kind of new level of sadism doesn't it really yeah and i think they're they're in such a privileged position as well and for no no real reason more than circumstance i think uh, he's kind of kobayashi is making a point about people in position of power uh, especially people in position of power that haven't necessarily got it for any reason other than anyone else there's no reason why you know, our heroes in this piece couldn't be in that position of power. Um, it's just circumstance. And there's that moment where um, Atomi tries to tries to w- get some honest work when he's trying to trying to get some money, and he's turned away because samurai aren't allowed to do menial tasks. They're not allowed to do like a regular job that anyone else would do. And you just think, you know, that's so unfair. He's just he's trying to make it better for himself but he, he's not allowed he's kind of trapped in this box he's put in a position where he can't do anything about it yeah i mean this is one thing that did slightly take me out of the film during that sequence i half expected him to see him like on skid row there's that, there's that brilliant scene where he goes into the pawn shop doesn't he and it's sort of this, this sort of thing did they really did they have pawn shops then you know it's sort of it, it's not it even sort of says you know kind of exchange place so it just says pawn shop or something like that and I, I did sort of kind of like laugh and there was you know these, these kind of guys queuing up for kind of um i suppose they're building some yeah a fort or something weren't they and it's like you know yeah you, you, you can't go in because you're kind of you're above all this and then he has to kind of you know go around the, the, the country trying to find work but this was another quite interesting thing as well i mean i'm I'm reading a book at the moment by um, Charles Ferguson called Predator Nation, and it's actually about kind of the global economic crisis and how the kind of the, the banks uh, kind of caused this, this nightmare. And it was interesting because I was reading this film. Uh, one of Kobayashi's kind of targets really was financial institutions and major corporations, and I think it's quite telling really how you know we have this kind of scene where the the the, the, the I suppose one of the biggest mitigating factors in all this is uh, poverty. I mean, he is there because they simply don't have enough money. And there is obviously this kind of like, I mean, I kind of made light of it really, but there's this kind of like economic crisis going on. And I think that's one of the reasons why this film, I, I, th- I think, resonates today. I, 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 People in kind of desperate times do desperate things. And there seems to be kind of stories, there's just been a tragic story in the in the press here of a girl who was 21 years old, she had a degree and she's actually killed herself after sending kind of 200 job applications. And they were for, you know, the most, crappiest jobs you can possibly imagine and i think it's quite telling that we i mean there's always been kind of economic crisis but certainly i think this is one of the reasons why i think people should kind of check this film out yeah i mean it has definite modern resonance i think it's every every theme that it explores is something that is relevant today as as relevant as it was back then i think that the idea of this ruling class that have so much control and that the people who need something can't get it i mean they they need healthcare for one thing uh, <laughs> that, that's got a lot of universal resonance. one at that yeah def- i mean that that would have solved all of the problems in the film really but uh <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's something that comes back again and again there's a good book by um alex Kerr, i think called uh oh, is it the one i'm thinking of uh it's a book called dogs and demons about uh japanese 
uh, economic crisis in the 90s. And that talks about kind of similar things, the way that people just ignored what was going on and they just like pretended like because they were in the position of power, they could just keep that, you know, as long as that looked relatively normal. You know, these these guys are sitting in this house, like you say, where there's completely empty rooms and they're they're worshipping this uh, this militarist idea that isn't really relevant anymore. But as long as they keep their position, they're going to pretend that everything's still the same and everything's fine. So I think mm. that's that's something that it never really goes away, and and certainly not unique to Japan. It's something that we experience in the in the West and every country. Yeah, because the the E clan they're not they're not entirely responsible for everything that has happened. They're just. They're just another piece in the puzzle, so to speak, and it's sort of the the armor or the the tradition or the entire culture that is the real evil of the story, and you can see that he's sort of commenting that Japan's political and social structure, that is what's really the problem here. That is the root of uh, what what evil is going on in society, and you can certainly draw metaphors to the present and how governments and how um, businesses are taking over and sort of replaced businesses have taken uh, the place of the clans in our society today. It's something that I talked quite a lot about in my own uh, episode that we don't have to get into right here, but it's certainly this commenting on how it's very relevant in uh, our society today. Yeah, I mean, one of the funny things about this, this Charles Ferguson book was apparently when um, they were kind of screaming out for banking regulation, the uh, kind of the the banks had got in such a position that they turned around to kind of government and said, well, we'll write our own legislation. And governments were like, yeah, okay, fine, that's fine. And then obviously kind of we saw what happened. And yet these people have basically literally got away with murder. I mean, um, there's, I don't know if you, if you have seen um, Client 9, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer. No. Um, it's yeah. a brilliant, a brilliant documentary, and there's the, the the head of AIG at the end of that film who caused absolute financial chaos, and um, he's he, he lost billions, and he says um he's, he's asked how much money he's worth, and he goes oh, oh barely nothing, only 180 million dollars, and it's like oh god, you know, poor you, you know, and he got some pathetic prison sentence. I don't, even, and in fact, I don't even know if he went to prison in the end. I think he just wasn't allowed to kind of run a business, and you know, these these are the people who apparently who who tell us that you, you know everything's fine, and you know we're in this. Kind of position of authority and they completely abuse it and trash us basically and i think it's yeah it's it's phenomenal really that this film is treading in that territory and is kind of holding a mirror up to that kind of society and that that, that way of life and like i said i think you're okay, it's a brilliant you know kind of the analogy of you know science fiction and this is that you know, them kind of the japanese way of exploring these themes and um yeah i, I think it is one of those films where you can the, the dig the more you I suppose the more you dig, the the more you, you get out of this film, which really, when you on paper, it, it does look like quite a simple story, but um, it kind of, you know, like The Onion, I suppose, it kind of peels away to reveal slightly more. The fact that Kobayashi as well, so and the writer, so strongly make the point that, you know, it, one person needs to stand up and say, no, that this, is, this isn't okay. Kind of everything that you said is entirely true. And I think that unless someone says that that's not okay that sort of pattern will just continue and i think it's uh i think it's really i can't think of a better word than cool but i think it's very cool that there's this this character at the heart of it that you kind of start to get behind and you know when he laughs maniacally sitting in the courtyard you're yeah. really behind him yeah. at that point <laughs> yeah you know you stick it to them you know you, you know that old 60s idea stick it to the man you know like really 
it's hard not to get behind him. Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, I suppose we do have that kind of verse. She's called Bradley Manning. And uh, <laughs> he's um, probably looking at a um, fairly hefty kind of uh, prison sentence. But I think it's, it's worth noting. I mean, I think it's quite hard really to kind of have, um, I mean, to kind of have the debates about kind of, you know, standing up for the big man, if the little man or this kind of thing at the moment. Because you have kind of you know, movements like Occupy Movement and things that we had like Occupy Manchester and... Um, it was pretty feeble, to be honest with you. Um, it, it, it needs someone to be sat there laughing maniacally, not sat there smoking, <laughs> smoking a huge spliff, eating beans out of a can. It just didn't. It didn't really. Uh, it didn't really work. But no, you're, you're completely right. That that moment, you want him to get up and dish out some whippers, which he does. And I suppose that kind of uh, bridges us to to that finale, which is um, the, the thing I like about these films, the sword fights. I mean, I think people could have raised on like Kill Bill and things like that. Um, might find these slightly underwhelming, but from what I've been told by kind of various kind of experts, this is way more realistic how these kind of fights have because they're quite short, sharp, and you don't. It's not fighting for the screen. I don't think. Um, as I understand as well, the blades were actually real in this film, and I, I certainly felt. I mean, I, I have a bit of a thing about kind of knives and things like that. It kind of makes my kind of skin crawl about. And when you watch it, it really does take you. It kind of. I'm worried for the actors, basically, when I'm watching this film. <laughs> but um, no, we kind of work, work towards that um, c- conclusion. And it's I think it's kind of full of kind of allegory because he he eventually kind of takes that inc- rather incredible um, kind of samurai that's standing over everyone. And you're not, I'm not quite sure why he actually does that, actually, other than to kind of piss them off. But um, it, at one stage, it kind of looks like he's going to start dancing with them or something <laughs> like that. But, I mean, it's, it's quite strange. But, I mean, you okay, I mean, what, what are your kind of thoughts on the ending? Uh, after, I watched it uh, last night, and in my memory, I I thought he killed a lot more people than yeah he, than only four, because it, I seem to remember this madman walking from room to room, just chopping everybody down, but... Uh, You've been watching too much uh, Kill Bill. Yeah, That's perhaps. Problem, yeah, yeah, but it, I, you just see that this man is... Uh, he's Every movement that he makes is measured and controlled, and it feels like a very real fight. It feels like you don't want to rush into... Uh, striking someone, you have to you have to uh, like take every variable into um, consideration, and it feels like this is uh, a fight that the filmmakers have thought a lot about. And when when he takes that armor off the pedestal, it's like it's a bit under nose, but it's certainly consistent with the theme of trying to break down the uh, the the conventions and the feudal society. Yeah. I think it's consistent with his behaviour as well. I think I can imagine he understands what he's doing, that he's disrespecting them. And I mm. think uh, yeah. I think that is consistent with him as well. I can, it, Even though it, I agree it is a bit on the nose, at the same time, I think he would behave in that slightly on the nose way, that he would yeah. try and just give that last single finger to them <laughs> to just say, you know, this, is, this isn't right. And when, he's, and when he sees the rifles coming, he's, he's certainly quick to... Uh, to take the sword and perform harakiri because he certainly doesn't want to die by bullet. He wants to die like the the traditional way of uh, taking his own life with a uh, with a sword. Yeah, and that's a, that's another scene as well where these suddenly these guns suddenly appear, and I felt that was a very very deliberate um, kind of like modernity suddenly catches up, doesn't hmm. it? In a way, through through weaponry. But I, I guess it's kind of really. I, I mean. I, I, we, if we have to talk about kind of spoilers here, because I mean, really, what um, Psycho does um, in this film, which is this kind of 
huge kind of sweeping under the carpet of what's actually happened in the film. And it's one of the kind of the, I suppose one of the most depressing endings to a film that I can remember having seen for quite a while because what essentially is going on here is the fact that absolutely nothing's going to really change, is it? Yeah, but the the significance I always think is that you leave charged up, that it is depressing in one way, but also at the same time you leave angry that that if he'd succeeded and he'd uh, kind of won in a way, which he, he kind of does to some degree, but without the sweeping under the carpet, you don't get, have that sense of anger as you walk out of the cinema that I suppose audiences at the time would have walked in and they would have gone on this journey. And then once you you see that resolution that doesn't really stop it, that this situation is still going on, that you walk out into the world where that situation is still going on and you're mm-hmm. angry, that you're, you know, you're pissed off, you want to you wanna do something about it. Um, so I think it works in that respect in some ways and it and then doesn't feel that depressing it feels more kind of like gets you fired up gets uh, some fire in your blood and it feels like a uh, it feels very consistent with Kobayashi as a person and how you you, you can't be satisfied with the, the status quo as you said and uh, it's the only uh, fitting ending I feel to the film yeah, the only thing I can relate to is well, I went to go and watch Rage Against the Machine once, and I remember seeing to walking out of that wanting to um, start smashing up branches of McDonald's <laughs> in a kind of like anti-capitalist rage, and it sort of lasted for about fifteen minutes when I realised I was hungry and I was going to go and get a a, a, a chicken sandwich meal or something <laughs> like that. You know, it's kind of I, 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 yeah, I personally found the ending to be incredibly downbeat, and um, I, I kind of hear what you're saying in, in many respects, Craig. You kind of, uh, you. It does kind of, I suppose, kind of try and ignite the spark. But um, I, I just sort of feel like it's one of these films where, like, I, again, I suppose the big corporation wins in the end. You know, and perhaps that's one. I, mean, I, I do like films with kind of slightly kind of more downbeat endings for some reason. I happen to be kind of uh, slightly kind of drawn to them. Not that I'm a kind of a half glass empty type of a person, but it's 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 certainly it's not it's not the kind of the triumphant ending perhaps i think that a lot of people that you don't kind of see a shrine to this guy at the end or you know you don't kind of see the people massing to kind of come in and change the system which i i think yeah i think it's quite a brave way i, I think sometimes when filmmakers leave audiences kind of on a slight, slight downbeat note i i kind of admire those who are able to kind of stick to that yeah there's a there's a quote from uh, Kobashi in the booklet I don't know if you guys remember that he says um he says Harakiri ends as a tragedy but my underlying theme transcends that I try to express the possibility that human beings can overcome the tragic events of the world so I think he he kind of uh there's that sense that he he understands it's a tragedy and it does sound seem quite depressing when you get to the end but that the, the I can't imagine anyone leaving the cinema and just thinking oh it's not worth it What's the point? You know, <laughs> yeah. they, I'm sure they're on his side that they 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 want things to change. I think. Mm. Yes, yeah, straight. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I, I sort of see what you're saying, but I, I yeah, I I do feel that it, it it's it's I, I don't know. It, it just feels like to me anyway. I've I've, I've just a little deflating, not deflating, but you just do sort of think, you know, these these bastards are going to win again. And uh, it's perhaps in a way, kind of the wish fulfillment is that he goes on this rampage, kills them all and kind of walks out of all their heads and says, right, we're going to start again. But, it, you know, it's, it, it, it doesn't quite give us that. But I mean, yeah, okay, anything else you kind of want to add kind of in, in relation to that? Uh, not in relation to that, but we can start talking about the performances perhaps. Yeah, definitely. Um, because... I think it goes without saying, really, that I think across the board, the performances in this film are 
are fairly incredible. Especially, I'll let you pronounce the guy. Who's the guy who plays Hanshiro? Uh, Nakadai. I, I can't remember his first name, but... Uh, Tatsu. Tatsu, yeah. yeah. But it's uh, we, we talked about it earlier when we talked about the film style that he, he certainly puts the performances front and centre and we're forced to kind of look at everyone's performances and scrutinise them. But every single one, they manage to convey such an honesty and feel like they, they're they putting their heart and soul out there. And it just, I'm, I'm amazed at how well uh, the film is acted, uh, like, across the board. Yeah, and again, we said ad nauseum now about kind of what stands out. I mean, a lot of these films, um, the, the dialogue seems to consist of people just shouting dialogue incredibly quickly, and it, it's it's very very stylized and you know a little bit kind of ridiculous at times in some of the other films. But in this, it, it does have these moments of kind of like barking and shouting. But um, you, you sense the pain in that guy's eyes, and uh, you can see that sort of the trauma that he's going through, and. Especially, I found um, Matomi's wife as well to be quite moving, mm. and I don't know. Perhaps it was just because it was late at night last night, and my kind of my guard was down a little bit. But um, yeah, I found her performance to be pretty, pretty bang on as well. Actually, she seemed like a female character in a in a you know, entirely male driven film. Who she really stood out for me. Mm. Is there anyone that stands out for you, Craig? Um, I think just uh, Nakadai. I mean, he's just his performance is just fantastic because he goes through so much, so. Much, there's a big range to his character that he has to deal with. And uh, I think he does an incredible job of it, that there's so much intensity at times. And he's playing this, his character's playing this game of revealing things in the way that uh, Kobashi is playing this game with us of revealing things as well. And I think when you rewatch the film, you get this sense of something going on beneath that surface of his face that uh, doesn't give it away, but kind of does at the same time. I think, mm. I think he's uh, extraordinary in it, really. It's very, it's a very quiet and subtle performance by him, where you feel this torment going on beneath. But he's always, he's always keeping that 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 calm face, and uh, yeah, it's uh, quite an extraordinary thing to watch. Well, because you think about it, I mean, he has to go for that stuff where he's like basically playing the concerned grandfather, mm. and this sort of like you know he's he's, he's kind of you know, he's doing what kind of people do when they pick up babes they kind of google at them and you know, he does all that and then he he kind of when he sat in that kind of uh you know waiting to say he suddenly becomes this absolute badass and you see this kind of two really it's like say the yin and the yang of him this kind of very kind of heartfelt emotional person and then also this kind of about to go on a rampage killing machine and um yeah and, and I, I like the fact that we have those scenes with the baby yeah as well and he's kind of picking them up because you know I'm, I'm sure through since the dawn of man men have been doing that when they pick up babies and you know that kind of like pride and it yeah it adds such weight to the characters and again i th- I, th- I think it was the guy that's playing matomi as well is that he kind of starts off as this almost slightly irritating pathetic person who suddenly you realize how you know desperate he is and how really what he's trying to do is so noble i mean he wants them to say that here's a bag of money off you go and he to save his son and hmm. when you kind of see the scenes and it, it really affected me and I'm, i remember the first time i watched it i was like oh god this you know talk about pain in the ass and then suddenly you, you go back to those scenes and you understand why he's so animated and he's so and you look again it's i think it's the eyes that give it away in this film you can see that kind of absolute horror um that, that that he's going to have to put himself through and uh, yeah it's it's fantastically moving i think in so many ways i think we can move on now to kind of the presentationist i mean um i suppose that i kind of the, the question i mean i'm assuming we've all got the blu-ray haven't we yeah i've only got the criterion blu-ray i haven't bought the uh, massive cinema one 
Tut tut, you can tut tut. Well, I mean, I, I bought it. I bought the, the DVD of the uh, Master Cinema one. I think I've double dipped on this one um, with Master Cinema, but I've definitely got this Blu-ray. Um, it will I mean, be. It speak. will be one that I will purchase uh, very soon. I feel because I bought all the uh, exclusive Master Cinema ones now, so now I have to, I have to double dip now from the Criterion. Well, yeah. And obviously, we're on a podcast talking about um, the Master Cinema. You're okay, so we're not here to plug the Criterion Collection. So um, no, I mean, I, I, I thought the presentation was pretty incredible. Actually, um, it's the the video quality. I, th- I think is it's what one why I love Blu-ray for this format is for films like this because it just absolutely brings it alive. I think it's a, a pretty amazing restoration, really. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> Blu-ray. One of the things that I keep coming back to it seems so nerdy and unimportant but the the blacks that you can see in it are just Mm, so dark and so like there's none of that haziness to it i mean i think the first time i saw harakiri was perhaps on either on tv or on vhs and it just you know i don't remember the cinematography it popped for me but it didn't pop in quite the same way and it's not that kind of stark contrast that you see with this and and blu-ray just handles that sort of stuff so well i think old films just so often these transfers just are extraordinary, especially Master Cinema, you know, Master Cinema and Criterion as well. And a few other companies can really do what's necessary with these and they really do. And it just looks, yeah, it's the extraordinary transfer that there's no, you know, unnecessary DNR or anything like that. It just looks, it looks fantastic. If you go on blu-ray.com, it seems that they both kind of given it four and a half stars out of five. And, it doesn't seem to be kind of any kind of noticeable kind of change differences. I mean, are you aware of any kind of anything slightly different, Joachim? I think the the difference is the um, the mass of cinema is slightly more silvery or slightly brighter than the Criterion one. Um, but that, that is the only difference. Uh, I think that both of them have gotten pretty good uh, reviews, as you said, yeah. It seems to be with the Japanese films specifically, the black and white ones, that Criterion and Master Cinema always seem to differ ever so slightly, but ever so slightly mm. in exactly the same way. Um, yeah. With um, Criterion always going a bit darker and a bit more high contrast. Yeah. Um, and I've never quite decided. Watching them side by side, even sometimes, I'm still not quite sure which I prefer. It seems a bit dependent on the film. I mean, I've done it a couple of times where I've got um, kind of Master Cinema and Criterion, and I've, I've put them on, and I've taken screenshots, and I've literally sat there, and it's only because I've. I, and what I've made a conscious effort to do is to, to do the side by sides and see if I can see the difference. And a lot of the times, I sort of think I, I don't I don't really see it, and I, I can't really can I get it, can, can I get what it is. And you go on and you read, and they sort of you get these people who seriously know what they're talking about. And I mean, I, I, it does amaze me some of the kind of people you know who, who review these who review these films because they just notice these tiny little things. And you go and think, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I sort of go into this panic, like, oh, my God, do I need to buy it now? <laughs> Am I somehow missing it? You know what I mean? What is the, the definitive version? And it sort of, it, it, I sort of sit there having this debate, thinking, like, for God's sake, you don't need to double dip on this. You know, just kind of enjoy it. And uh, it's not going to make any difference. But, I mean, I'd, I'd like to be in a room with the, the two people that make the decision and see which one thinks they're right. Because I, I, I bet it would be, um, well, I suppose it would probably be geek heaven, really, wouldn't it? I mean, they'd be probably, you know, kind of comparing and, and contrasting. But, I mean, I'm a big believer in, um, you, you you don't ever try and muck around with kind of di- di- where possible kind of, you know, remove big scratches if you can. But I mean, if you can't, you know, leave them in there. And the, the prints for these seem pretty pristine um, to me. Hmm. I, I didn't notice any sort of 
um, kind of artifacts, really, or anything like that. Which and there was a kind of a nice kind of film grain there. And it just beggars belief, really, how they could mess up things like Predator. I, mean, I don't know if either of you two have seen yeah. The, yeah, blue, the, the blue. The I mean, it, it's Schwarzenegger. just a it's, it's a tragedy. And I mean, studios really annoy me because I mean the pattern Blu-ray that came out in America, which they then remastered and put out a new one, which is stunning. Um, and they released the pattern here a few months ago, and it was the old crappy one. And it, you know, it's just a waxy face version, and it's just it, it drives me mental um, that they cut, they kind of do that. But I mean, sound wise as well. I mean, it's a two. I think it's a two point zero soundtrack yeah, on this DTS, one. Yeah, it's a DTS stereo on it, two point zero, and it it sounds great as well, doesn't it? The the kind of the silence that there is in the film as well. Mm. It, it does sound yeah. silent. <laughs> Exactly, yeah, and I mean, it sounds kind of like kind of kind of obvious to say, but silence should sound like silence, and here silence sounds like silence, which is a you know, it's, yeah, it's a very faithful restoration, and I think we kind of, that's what we kind of come to um, expect from Master Cinema. But this one's not so big on features, really, is it? it it's not chock a block like a few of them are. Uh, does it come with a? It comes with a booklet. Is there anything else? Yeah, or? interesting booklet. Yeah, I mean, there's a. I mean, an interview. Um, um, but no, there's not really much else as a trailer. But I don't. I don't count trailers as special. There's, features there's an interview just... with uh, Kobashi on it as well. Uh, yeah, from '93. Yeah, yeah, with him and Shinoda, which I I haven't watched it in some time, but I don't remember finding it particularly interesting. But uh, it's always you know somewhat interesting to have the director speaking his own words about the about the film. Yeah, a lot of those director interviews, I think they're kind of like, um, uh, they tend to be kind of more celebrations than they do sort of critical analysis. I know what you mean. They, they sometimes are a bit kind of like, um, so tell me, tell us why you're brilliant and we'll agree with you <laughs> type things. And they, I think it's, a, sort of think, oh, you know. it's a shame though that it's an interview, uh, I think it's an interview conducted by Shinoda of Kobashi. So it should be a bit more interesting. I think it's culled from a much longer interview. Um, yeah. That they've right. taken one think- section. Yeah, I think it's um, present on another Shinoda film, I think. Um, but I can't remember right now. But I see, I think I've seen the long version of it. Uh, yeah. Like an hour version of it or something. I have a feeling I've seen another section from it as well, perhaps on another thing. So it's maybe being cannibalised for a, a bunch of discs, maybe. I'm not sure. Hmm. I'm double-checking it. Yeah, I'll have a look on, uh, see if we can find it on YouTube or somewhere like that. Someone is, if, if there's a fuller version out there and kind of post it up. But I mean, overall, I mean, um, I think it's a pretty, pretty, what's on the Criterion um, disc? You can remind me, I've got, I've got the DVD. I uh, on the Criterion, there's a uh, video introduction from the late Donald Ritchie. And there's also, it's the same commentary or same um, interview, I think, uh, that is on the uh, Masters of Cinema with uh, Kobayashi and Shinoda. And there's also uh, interviews with uh, Tatsuya Nakadai and um, Shinobu Hashimoto, the screenwriter. Um, let me just double check to see if this one is um, a multi-region one. Hang on a uh, second. No, they're, they're both region locked, actually. The, they're both yeah, region the locked. Yeah, the Criterion and the Master Cinema are both region locked. So I suppose it, uh, yeah, tough tough luck really, isn't it? I mean, and if that kind of um, slight difference in image is uh, that important, you're obviously going to have to... Uh, yeah, make a big, big decision as to kind of what level of silver it is that uh, you, you want to see in it. But everyone, everyone should be region free, though, right? You guys agree with that, surely? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Totally, I totally. And one of the reasons is, especially because I have to give this company called DVD Fab Media Player money um, every year to get this kind of like license to watch uh, region A Blu-rays 
and it just infuriates because they're the worst company ever. It's just a bunch of shysters, and it just it a- a- angers me every time I uh, think. And it's such a bloody palaver having to put the um, cable in the back of my Mac into the telly, and it's like the cat invariably comes up and starts chewing the cable, and then it, you have to get up and beat the cat away from chewing the cake and it, by that time you're just like for, I can't be bothered and it sort of does my head in. It's every time time I have to do it I sort of science I, I don't understand this region thing and it does promote piracy I can attest to that because when I found out Patton was, wasn't was going to be the uh, remastered one in the UK I went straight onto a website and downloaded the full Blu-ray of, of the remastered version and I just sort of thought you know what if you're going to be that stupid and that annoying and that petty then I'm, I'm afraid so you deserve to have uh some of your revenue removed but i mean yeah again it's just ridiculous to me it's just so frustrating Hmm. one of the things i quite liked about uh, master cinema when i started getting into them was the lock screens that i encountered when i forgot to switch my blu-ray player over to the right region and then those uh, those wonderful screens that say something along the lines of books on region coded to wire films and it's such a good point really <laughs> it's that they're yeah. right and i i appreciate that master cinema despite the fact that they're tied their hands are obviously tied by um rights holders uh, that they they realize that you know that is annoying they'd rather not do it they're doing it because they have to and it's mm. uh, it's such a shame and it it leads to a ridiculous situation yeah. well i think as well i mean the, the, the copyright laws are an absolute joke and a nightmare i mean if you look at the amount of as, as, as reading an article the other day, actually, and it was about how many kind of like films and TV shows simply can't be released due to various weird copyright laws, ranging from, or you know, like a song playing in a radio or something like that, basically means that if they do release it, they're going to have to pay some company half a million dollars, and it it just ends up basically just screwing people over. Well, it's, creating. I, I think it's a real shame, not not so much even just for screwing people over, but just it's a shame for those films that are lost. I mean, or lost or relegated to that situation. That it's it's about preserving artwork, surely, and that's the important thing. And that this this situation with region coding is d- demented in that sense as well. That it's about artwork that we have in our homes that we can see and we have access to, and restricting people's access to art is such a such a sad thing really isn't it i mean absolutely and i think the other the other thing as well is 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 this ridiculous policy i mean a lot it happens a lot of other like modern films where like i mean i think flight in um the new robert zemeckis film i mean that was that was able to you were able to buy that in on blu-ray in america before you were able to see it in the cinema here i mean i haven't seen it yet but i I, it's just suddenly seemed ridiculous because i mean yeah there's places you go where you could have downloaded the blu-ray and yet you can't even see it and it's not even come out in the cinema yet. And that's the other thing. I just don't understand this kind of you know, ridiculous kind of regional film releasing. And, and I think that's one of the reasons, one of the excuses they use for coding anyway is to kind of stop piracy. But there's always a way that someone will always find a way to defeat coding. And I, I just think it's sort of better just getting rid of it and just sort of saying, right, you know, you know make, make, make your own minds up really, you know, what version you want. But I think it's that's, that's the situation though where peak consumers just have to vote with their feet. And I mean, there's this story today. I, I don't know whether the, how relevant this is to the podcast necessarily. But it's angered no, no, me. We always go off on tangents. <laughs> it's angered me quite a lot today. The the story about Snowpiercer and that the Weinstein's are up to their usual tricks of cutting it, and uh, and it's going to mean that basically I'm not going to see Snowpiercer in a cinema. I'm going to be seeing it on Blu-ray when I import it, and that's yeah. the same situation for a lot of people. And then there'll be a lot of people that will see a, a bastardized cut of it, and there'll be a lot of people that never see it at all. And it's just it, it's affecting the films. It's affecting the thing that we all love i'm guessing so it's 
it's just ridiculous, really, that this is still a situation in 2013. We we live on we live in a world not we don't we aren't as locked by borders as we were before. It's kind of a silly situation, I think. No, totally. I mean, I, I can't remember what the film. I can't remember what the film's called, but it's about a group of guys whose mates dying, and they try and take him to Sky to George Lucas Ranch to Fan watch boys. the first fanboys. Yeah. Fanboys, and I was listening to this, and I think it was another one. I think it might have been the Weinstein's, but basically, just took the film off him and just decimated it and released this sort of happy-go-lucky film. Hmm. When really, and I was listening to the director talk, and he said there was his version sat on his shelf of this quite poignant moving film that got kind of butchered and turned into this sort of, you know, happy-go-lucky version that was kind of spat out on DVD and just completely disappeared. And it's just, yeah, I guess it, it does kind of breed a bit of sort of, you know, animosity and it, just, it makes you sort of feel like you are missing out on possibly some pretty decent stuff. I mean, yeah, that Snowpiercer stuff today, is that it looks like the type of film I'm genuinely interested in. I, I um, think it I, looks I, quite quite incredible actually i think everything about it seems like it has the potential to be a very interesting film and i think this is kind of disgusting behavior actually the way he's doing it and the fact that he the reasons that he's given make it even worse the fact he's suggested that audiences are too dumb basically to to watch it or he wants to dumb it down for audiences to so that he'll try and get more people in to watch it i mean that's yeah and it's all it's all self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecies and you know if you don't give people the opportunity then they're always locked within watching these dumbed down versions they never experience the non-dumbed down versions if a non-dumbed down version turns up they don't understand it perhaps if, if that even is the case and just, just quick did you what did you make of the experiment that was the field in england as well a few weeks ago um i, I mean i watched it on tv i kind of wish i'd watched it in the cinema but i wasn't able to just through timings but um yeah, yeah. yeah i think it's a i think it was certainly a good idea but then even still i mean does that really go does it go far enough in a way it's was still only britain wasn't it i believe yeah but i mean i, I mean as, a, as an experiment i really i thought it was a great idea for a film like that you know watching the cinema tv or going by the blu-ray that day you know the choice is yours what do you, you know what do you want to do and um yeah, I, I, I was, I kind of really got in. It. I mean, I bought it, sort of obviously without actually seeing it, just because I thought I, I quite like to sort of show support for the concept, as it were. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was a big, big fan of uh, what Louis C.K. did with his um, stand-up special, where he released it online and he released it DRM-free um, at a flat fee around the world that anyone could download it and you could buy it. And I did exactly that. I bought it on the day it came out. But I was incredibly disappointed that the next stand-up special he did, he took a step backwards and did it on TV. And I just think it's a bit of a shame because that experiment worked so well for him as well. He made ludicrous amounts of money. And it kind of proved that this can work. And people didn't pirate it to the degree. Or even if they did pirate it, he still made loads and loads of money, so much more than he was expecting to. So it can work. It's just... They don't necessarily give it the chance. You know, the Weinsteins aren't going to give Snowpiercer the chance. They're just going to release this dumbed-down version. It's such a shame. I'd like to know if anyone who downloaded um, a field in England illegally, because that has got to be the thickest person on planet <laughs> Earth, because surely you could have just, like, TiVo'd it or something, you know, just caught it onto your hard drive. Yeah, I mean, but, it's still sitting on my know, TiVo but... box, actually. I haven't deleted it. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. No, no, well, no, no, but... Um... Okie dokie. I think we'll probably kind of wrap it up for then. Craig, uh, before you go, can you just tell us like where can we find you online? Yeah, well, you can find me uh, writing about film every day at Bleeding Cool, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at C Skinner. Um, you're a Kim? 
Uh, they can find us at uh, mocast.blogspot.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, just search for Masters of Cinemacast. And you can find me uh, at The Film Man on Twitter. Yeah, you can find me on my other podcast, 24 Framescast. It's up on iTunes. It's on 24framescast.blogspot.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at 24, 24 Framescast. Sorry. Um, before we go, Craig, thank you so much for coming on board with us today. It's been absolutely brilliant having you. Yeah, thank you. No problem. And um, that's going to be it. We'll be in contact soon with another episode. Many thanks. Bye. Bye.